The title for this evening is The Reluctant Missionary. And I was looking at the slide earlier that said, The Reluctant Missionary, Ian Prescott. (laughs) I hope that's not the main thing that you'll take away from this evening. I wonder what you think makes a good missionary. Who you think makes a good missionary. When James Hudson Taylor, who founded the China Inland Mission, which became in due course over the years, OMF that we serve with today, was recruiting people for China. He had one man apply called George Stott. And George Stott was a great man, but he had one impediment. He only had one leg. And he applied and he was turned down and he applied again and he was turned down and he would not give up. So he applied again and he eventually got an interview with Hudson Taylor who said, well, well, what are you going to do? Do you understand the situation in China? When we preach the gospel to the crowds in China, the crowds quite frequent, frequently turn violent and we need to be able to run away. What are you going to do? He said, well, I'm not going to run away. I have no plans to run away. And Hudson Taylor was so struck by this man and so struck by his commitment that he took him and he went to China and he faced the crowds. And there is a story of of the crowd turning violent and stealing everything and grabbing his crutches and saying, well, aren't you going to run away? And he said, well, look at me. I've only got one leg. And, And he was so winsome that actually the crowd stopped their turbulence and began to to listen to him again. And in fact, in the area in which he went to China, quite a significant church was established, which to this day is one of the, the areas with one of the strongest churches in China. When people asked George Stott why he, with only one leg, should think of going to China, he said, I do not see those with two legs going, so I must go. Well, even today we get people like George Stott who apply to OMF and we think, they're really not suitable. They're really not physically up to it. But we have to make sure we're not turning away those whom God is calling. Well, today we're actually going to look at the story of two people. One is the reluctant missionary. And I was told in the vestry that you've already had a sermon on the reluctant missionary, but that was about Jonah, that was some time ago. This is about Peter. But the chapter that we're going to look at is actually about two people. It's about Cornelius, who is, if you like, the enthusiastic inquirer, and Peter, who is the reluctant missionary. And this story is actually given a chapter and a half of Acts, We're only going to read the version in chapter 10 because then there's a a retelling in chapter 11. So let's turn to our Bibles. It's page 1103 in the Church Bible. Acts chapter 10, Cornelius calls for Peter. At Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian Regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day, at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord, he asked. 
The angel answered, Your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon who is called Peter. He is staying with Simon the Tanner whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. About noon the following day as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told him, Get up, Peter. Kill and eat. Surely not, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times and immediately the sheep was taken back to heaven. While Petering was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. They called out, asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you, so get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. Peter went down and said to the men, I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come? The men replied, We have come from Cornelius the centurion. He is a righteous and God-fearing man who is respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him to ask you to come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. Then Peter invited the men into the house to be his guests. The next day Peter started out with them and some of the believers from Joppa went along. The following day he arrived in Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him get up. Stand up, he said. I am only human myself. While talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, You are well aware that it's against our law for a Jew to associate with Gentiles or visit them. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask why you sent for me? Cornelius answered, Three days ago I was in my house praying at this hour at three in the afternoon. Suddenly a man in shining clothes stood before me and said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayer and remembered your gifts to the poor. Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He is a guest in the home of Simon the Tanner, who lives by the sea. So I sent for you immediately, and it was good of you to come. Now we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. And Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts those from every nation who fear him and do what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all? You know what has happened throughout the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee, after the baptism that John preached? How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power? 
how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a cross. But God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people but by witnesses whom God had already chosen. By us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gifts of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. And Peter said, Surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. May God bless the reading of his word and help us to understand it together. As I said, this is really the story of two people. It's the story of Cornelius, the enthusiastic inquirer, or the good man who was saved, and it's the story of Peter, the reluctant missionary, or the evangelist who was converted. I'd like us to start with Cornelius, the enthusiastic inquirer. We know a number of things about Cornelius. First, that he was a military man. He was a centurion in Caesarea. The situation was that Israel was part of the Roman Empire. The Jews were forced to submit to Roman rule, Roman administration, Roman taxes. And Cornelius was part of the Roman army sent to keep them under Roman rule. He was more than just a soldier, he was an officer, a centurion in charge of a hundred men, roughly equivalent to a captain or a company commander in our own military terminology, a member of the Italian regiment, which suggests that he was most certainly from Italy, maybe even from Rome. But he was also a religious man. And it appears that although he was a Roman, he didn't follow Roman gods. At that time, that meant masses of different gods and goddesses, each with their own temple or shrine. But he instead is described as devout and God-fearing. That may mean just that he was very religious, but it may well mean that he was, he was halfway to Judaism. He'd accepted Jewish ethical standards, he'd accepted some of the Jewish beliefs in one God, perhaps was even attending services in the synagogue. Certainly we know from verse 22, he was well respected by the Jewish community in that area. We also know that he was a generous man. He gave generously to those in need. And if we had any doubts about the sincerity of his religious belief, here is the proof. When somebody's faith touches their wallet, there's a proof there of their genuineness, isn't it? And it really makes that kind of a difference. And he was a prayerful man. He prayed 
regularly to God. So here he is, a military man, a generous man, a deeper religious man who's probably already turned away from the polytheistic worship of Rome to fear the God of Israel and pray to him. He's described as a righteous man. A righteous and God-fearing man is the description in verse 22. But was he a man right with God? I remember asking this question of a lady in a Bible study in the Philippines. And and we'd looked at Cornelius. Here he is, devout, God-fearing, generous, respected, prayerful. Is anything missing in his relationship with God? Was he right with God? Was he saved? Was he converted? Did he know new life in Christ? Well, the answer is no. He was a good man. And God was pleased by his goodness. In chapter 10, verse 4, it says, Your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a remembrance before God. God has noticed what he likes. And God appreciates goodness in whoever it is. But that didn't mean he was right with God. And it's very clear in God's instructions to him through the angel He is to send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. And he will bring you a message through which you and all your household will be saved. He was not yet saved. He did not yet know fully the good news that would bring him new life, that would bring him the gift of the Holy Spirit. He still needed God. And I think this is important to note. He could be devout and religious, but not saved. He could be God-fearing in some sense, but still not know Jesus. He could be a generous man, but that did not earn him salvation. He could be praying, but not receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit. And one of the first things that I see in the story about Cornelius is that everybody needs Christ. Good men need Christ. And good women, for that matter, too. Be fair in the gender stakes. Righteous people need Christ. Religious people need Christ. As well as bad men and unrighteous men and irreligious people that perhaps we feel need something. But we used to find when we worked in the Philippines that that sometimes people would ask us when we were speaking at something that, aren't these very religious people? Why do you need to go to them? Well, being very religious people is really not worth very much if you don't have Christ. And that applies to the Catholics of the Philippines, which have a religion which is mainly descended from Spanish Catholicism and is a long, long way from the good news of the Bible. That applies to the Buddhists of Thailand who can be very religious but don't have Christ. That applies to the poor people of Cambodia in their poverty. They need help in their poverty, but they also need Christ. That applies to the rich and wealthy and well-off in Japan, who perhaps have very little physical need, but they still need Christ. And it doesn't matter if they're nominally something, they still need that personal relationship with Christ. And we see that in Cornelius, 
the good man, good in so many respects, but he still needed the good news about Jesus. The second thing that I notice about the story of Cornelius is the trouble that God goes to to make sure that Cornelius gets the opportunity to to get the missing piece. First he sends an angel to visit Cornelius in a vision. I don't know how many people here have been privileged to receive a vision and an angel. It's not a method that um, I think the Lord uses very much in Britain. I don't think we're very receptive to this. I think most of us, if, if we had a vision and saw an angel, we'd think, what did I eat last night? <laughs> but in some cultures where there's an expectation that God will speak in that way, it's a very effective way for God to speak to people. Amongst Muslims who have come to Jesus, those who have really studied this reckon that perhaps 80 or 90% as part of their pilgrimage to following Jesus, have had a vision along the way, and often a vision of Jesus. It's a very effective way for God to speak to them, because, because they expect to see, to hear something significant in that way. Whereas we expect to put it down to indigestion. God has to find other ways to speak to modern Brits. And that's fine. He's very creative and he has a lot of ways. So first he sends this angel to Cornelius. And then whilst Cornelius' servants were travelling to Joppa, he gives Peter a vision. Now Peter is perhaps not as receptive to visions as Cornelius was. And and he has to repeat this vision three times and repeat the instructions three times. And then when eventually the reluctant Peter had got to Cornelius' house, And you sense that he'd sort of taken in the message, but he was still really wrestling to accept it. God pours out his spirit on Cornelius and his family in such a dramatic way that Peter and those with him can't fail to see what God is doing. In fact, we read, they were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit could be poured out even, even on Gentiles. Wow, they hadn't really come prepared for that. But God believes it is worth all this trouble. And when I look at mission today, I have to say it's a lot of trouble. You know, all the work that is the mission committee, or whatever you call it these days, we have been told the right term, but we've forgotten it. You know, to organize a weekend like this, to get mission on our agenda, to send somebody off for training, to send somebody overseas, to give them all the support to to sustain them overseas, to find ways into countries which don't welcome people identified as missionaries, to learn another language. Most of our Asian languages take at least a couple of years to begin with. Many of them you'll be learning until you retire one way or another, to learn another culture and all the structures that that we need as a mission to continue to provide and support for people and to keep them in the situation that they've invested so much in preparing for. Is it worth all that hassle? 
I think God's answer is a resounding yes. The good news that we have is important enough to merit all the effort and all the resources that it takes. According to Christ, it is the pearl of great price that is worth selling everything to get and therefore worth giving up whatever is necessary to go and share it with others. And of course, it's shown beyond a shadow of a doubt in the effort that God went to to make salvation possible. Thousands of years of preparation for sending Jesus. And then, of course, the sacrifice of the death of Jesus because God believes it's worth it. But the third thing I see here, that it's God who actually does it. Peter preached, but God actually did the work of stepping into Cornelius' life and turning him around and filling him with the Holy Spirit. And this, I believe, is so important in what we do. We can preach and we can share and we can produce literature and we can do all kinds of things, but only God can change the life of somebody, whether it's in Scotland or the Philippines or Japan or South America or wherever. Only God gives new life by his Holy Spirit. He alone can do that. And often we've had to specifically say to this, when we were in the Philippines, people used to say, uh, you won't convert me, I'm a cerrado catolico, I'm a closed Catholic. And we say, well that's okay, we, we never hoped to. That's what God does. You find that something that our folk often say in Muslim contexts. I had a friend who works amongst Muslims and in a little village where he was living, the elders came and, and, and they asked him, are you a Christian missionary here to convert us? And he said, no, 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 no. And he quoted the Quran to them. And he could quote the surah, the chapter and verse it says, there is no compulsion in religion. He said, I can't make you change religion. But, but Allah might, which is the name that they use for Allah, which was originally a Christian name for Allah anyway, for God. But God can do it. God does do it. Even amongst peoples who seem so resistant, God is doing it. And one of the exciting things in East Asia today is to see some of the peoples that have seemed tight shut, have seemed so resistant, to see a trickle of people becoming to the Lord and, and to see that trickle growing. I think of one people group I visited a number of years ago and there were just nine believers out of a million and a half. That's the whole of Glasgow and the whole of Edinburgh and about two of these little rows of, you know, two of the pews down there. That was the number of believers. Now perhaps there are a hundred. It's growing. It's not easy. But it's happening. And, and we've seen in one way or another this, this miracle in action. That lady that I mentioned in the Bible study, who we asked what she thought about Cornelius, she actually became a Christian through this story about Cornelius. And, and we only discovered afterwards, but she was really listening very carefully to this story about Cornelius because she once had a boyfriend that she nearly married who was called Cornelius. <laughs> God uses these things. God prepares things before we ever get there. And so she was particularly interested in this story of Cornelius. And through it, that she saw that she was a good person, but she 
needed to be saved and found that life in Christ. That's the story of Cornelius. But then the other story entwined in here with the story of Cornelius is the story of Peter. John Stott says in his commentary on this chapter, the principal subject of this chapter is not so much the conversion of Cornelius as the conversion of Peter. Now, why does Peter need to get converted? Peter is an apostle. Peter is an evangelist. Peter is already out there preaching the gospel. What do you mean? It always amazes me when I reflect on this chapter that God doesn't get the angel to tell Cornelius the good news. I mean, think about it. He's already sending the angel to give Cornelius the vision to send him to go and get Peter. Wouldn't it just be simpler to, you know, cut Peter out of the equation? He's a rather dodgy element and he takes quite a lot of persuasion and coercion to get him into line. But he doesn't. He uses Peter instead of an angel. Although an angel, there's all kinds of odd stuff in the media about what angels are. But essentially from the Bible, angels are messengers. Reliable messengers. You give them a message, you know it's going to arrive. It's not like email. <laughs> you hope it will arrive. It won't get stopped in a spam field. Give it to... It's not like us. You give me a message, you say, you know, when you get home tonight, could you tell Anne-Marie? And then you check, you know, Anne-Marie, did Ian remember to tell you? Well... And Marie will tell you how reliable I am. <laughs> or not. But God doesn't use angels. His method is to use us. To use people. Because this is a personal message about a personal God. And he believes it is best passed on from person to person. Paul wrote, how then can they call on the one they have not believed in? How then can they call in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? This is God's method to entrust it to a person. And in this case, he entrusts it to Peter. And Peter is the person that he chooses to go to Cornelius. And in some ways, I think he's an odd choice. And sometimes in mission, you think, oh, this person is just such a great fit for this situation. And other times you think, why on earth has God chosen this person? But I think God often likes to do the unexpected. And in this case, you have Cornelius, a military man, a Gentile, you get the impression of a courteous military gentleman. And then you have Peter, a fisherman, a Jew. And we know because there's a lot of stories about Peter that he was fairly rough, quite impetuous, spoke his mind, you know, speak first, think afterwards. They just were not a natural match. And yet, he was God's choice. And he wasn't a natural match 
because he was actually very prejudiced about taking the gospel to somebody like Cornelius. Peter didn't think Romans could be saved. The Old Testament had taught the Jews that they were God's chosen people, chosen by him that the whole world might be be blessed. But they had taken that teaching, forgotten the part about being a blessing to the world. Because we are blessed. Just as God's Old Testament people were blessed. Not just so we can go, oh, isn't it wonderful to be blessed? But so that we can be a blessing to the world. But they'd lost that. And they twisted the part about being God's chosen people into a doctrine of favoritism. They had become filled with what can only really be called racial pride. They despised Gentiles as dogs. They would have nothing to do with them. An Orthodox Jew would never even enter the home of a Gentile nor invite him into his own. And that's such a loss because it's such a powerful thing when you bring somebody into your home. I'm just talking about international students this evening. You know, do have them into your home. That means so often. And sometimes when we meet people in East Asia who've studied in this country, they have been so touched by somebody who opened up their home to them. You don't have to welcome all 170 of them. Two would do. (laughs) But it's such an opportunity. But they wouldn't have them into their homes. They wouldn't go into their homes. They regarded them as excluded from the covenant with God, cut off from the kingdom of God, unsaved and unsavable. That was Jewish anti-Gentilism. In Ephesians, Paul talks about the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility that stood between Jews and Gentiles. In the Tagalog, the word we use for that, when we're using that verse or translating that verse, is that for a solid concrete wall. Instead of another word, which means a sort of traditional wall of of bamboo and rush matting. But this was a solid wall that couldn't be moved. But in Christ, that dividing wall between Jew and Gentile had been torn down. But Peter hadn't understood that. In his his mind, it still existed. And he was no more about to go and preach the gospel to the Gentiles than you're about to go and organize an evangelistic mission to the monkeys at Edinburgh Zoo. They're just... You know, you just don't think they need the gospel. Well, I think you're right. But Peter was wrong. And there's still sometimes that kind of prejudice. We found in the Philippines when, when we were learning Tagalog, some of our co-missionaries were preparing to go to Muslims in the Philippines. And when we shared that with some Filipino Christians, they just said, why? Why Why bother? When we talked about some of the tribal people, they genuinely asked, do they have tails? Because we've heard they have tails. But sometimes I think we have to examine our own hearts. Yet, if if some of the reasons why we're not reaching out are because we haven't really taken on board that God's love is as big and as embracing as it really is. Because before God could do anything else, he had to break down this barrier of prejudice and racial pride in Peter. He had to do it, obviously, for Cornelius' benefit, that he and all his household might receive salvation. But he also had to do it for Peter's benefit, because Peter was never really going to understand the greatness of the good news 
until he caught on to this. And it's wonderful to read as he begins to speak in Cornelius' house and now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism but accepts those from every nation who fear him and do what is right. But I only now have really realized it. But that's such an important dimension to the good news. But he's got it. But also this was for the benefit of the whole church. This is not just some small story, some small anecdote. This is a whole chapter and a half in Acts. This is important. And you almost get the whole thing told twice because you get the story about Cornelius and then Cornelius recounts it in detail um, to Peter when he arrives. And then Peter, uh, when he goes back, He's called to task by the church. What have you done? We hear you've been to the house of a Gentile and you baptized them. And he has to tell it all again. And Luke could have just written, so Peter told them what had happened. But he doesn't. He wants us to take in all the details of what has happened because this is a crucial turning point for the church, the new church, when they realize that this good news is not just for them in their cosy new fellowship. But if they're going to be faithful to the good news that they have been given, then it must extend to the whole world. And immediately to those around them who they think for one reason or another, God is not concerned about because he is. And so God breaks down Peter's prejudice with four great hammer blows. The first is this vision. The message of the vision is that all food is clean. Peter finds that very hard to take in. But when he does, he realizes that God is not talking about food. But God is saying that all people are clean. They are all equal in God's sight. That's followed by the divine command when Cornelius' servant comes to the house asking for Peter. And Peter sort of, the spirit says, go, go. Yes, I know that. Romans, and you're being asked to go to the house of a Roman, but go. And then when he gets to Cornelius' house, he finds God's divine preparation. What, what a wonderful welcome. We are all here in the presence of God, says Cornelius, to listen to what the Lord has commanded you to tell us. Wow, what, what missionary, what evangelist would, would love to be welcomed with those words. And and just occasionally people do encounter that kind of response. And God has been at work preparing people. We had a tribal situation in Mindoro. And and years before, that tribal people had been given a vision about a white person. There were no white people in their thinking, but this white person who would come and tell them important years. And years later, a white person came. And there was a receptivity to listen to this good news because they've been waiting. Fascinatingly parallel to this in some ways, a vision. And the person. But the person was God's means of sharing with them. And finally, the divine action. Leaves no room for doubt or vacillations on Peter's part. While Peter is still preaching, God gives the gift of his Holy Spirit to Cornelius and his family in such a clear and dramatic way that there can be no doubt that he has received them into his family and that therefore Peter should receive them into the family of his church 
in baptism. And later, in chapter 11, when Peter explains himself to the skeptical fellow believers back at Jerusalem, he finishes his explanation in verse 17 by saying simply, Who was I to think that I could stand in God's way? God was doing this. And and I just had to go along with it. And this is how God challenged and changed Peter. One of the things that we do in Singapore is we we interview all the new people joining OMF. And we're getting about 100 or nearly 100 people a year. Um, And it's quite a lot of work to squeeze in all those interviews on top of everything else. But it's a great joy and encouragement to hear their stories about how God has challenged and changed them and prepared them to come to East Asia. For some of them it's been very simple and straightforward and God put that spark and that idea in their lives. Some of them very early on. A few people have called before they're ten. For some it's been a much slower pilgrimage of, of having their ideas changed having prejudices removed. Every so often we hear somebody who says, I told the Lord I was ready to go everywhere except. And quite often, they're going to the place they said, except. (laughs) And I sometimes reflected on that and, and, and wondered why that is. Is God a sort of mean old fellow who listens to what you would like to do and notes the one thing you don't want to do and says, okay, you'll do that. I don't think that's the character of our God. But I think often what is happening is that these folk are wrestling with a sense that God is pushing them in that direction. And, and, and they want to sort of seem obedient, so they're saying, yes, I'll, I'll go anywhere, Lord, as long as it's the other direction. And, and often the accept is, a, is, is, is the response of somebody struggling with God's call and not quite ready to accept it, but sort of wanting to be obedient, but not really wanting to follow what God is calling them to in that obedience. But I think like Peter, God is challenging us to set aside any prejudices that we might have. If there's anybody we felt, oh, you know, forget them. To go to people that we don't expect to go to. Practically none of the people who join us are a natural fit in the East Asian context that they're going to. Most of them are blessed with two legs. (laughs) But in one way or another, there's an awful lot of things that they have to work through. But God is going to use them in a very different context, in a very different situation. Most of them are going to go to situations where at least initially they will be quite uncomfortable. I get the sense when Peter first went into Cornelius' house and Peter was a good Jew and he has never been in a Gentile's house before and he says and this is not really the best way to greet your host, is it? You are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with Gentiles or to visit them. I should really not be there and I'm really not enjoying being here. But... (laughs) I sort of, God has encouraged me to do so. God has shown me that I should not call anybody impure and clean. So I've come without any objection. <clears throat> After much persuasion and having the instructions repeated three times, 
But, but, but our God is gracious and goes along with that. And if we are genuinely pursuing his will and his way, he, he will <laughs> take the time to show us and show us again until we're ready to go, until we're ready to follow. Because he wants us to go. Because he wants people to hear. Because the gospel, the good news, Jesus is for the whole world. And no one is outside the scope of God's concern. We may create barriers, but God is always above them. Always concerned for those on the other side of the barriers. Concerned that the good news of Jesus should cross over those barriers and bring life and reconciliation and break those barriers. And he took Peter and he changed Peter in his understanding of the good news. And he took the early church and changed their understanding of the good news. That that good news would get to everybody and not just to Jews. And that's perhaps the most important thing that's being told about in this chapter, in the middle of Acts, this pivotal turning point as The good news then moves out to all kinds of people in all kinds of places. So as we wrap up, I've got down here two questions and a cause for rejoicing. The first question I want to ask you is, are you saved? Good, straightforward, evangelistic question. But it's so easy to be good, religious, go to church, be a good Baptist, or a good something else, and still not know Jesus. And I can't talk about this story about Cornelius without wanting to stop and check that there isn't somebody here who matches that description of Cornelius. Good in so many respects but still lacking the life, the spiritual life, the eternal life that God alone gives in Christ. If that is the case, don't go home tonight without talking to somebody about that. The second question is whether you are ready to be used by God to take his good news to others whether we're ready to ask the Lord is, is there something in me is there a prejudice in me am I not seeing your way forward because there's something in my heart that isn't of you that isn't of the good news that is for every people have I written some people off or some group of people because they're, they're too bad or I don't like them or I can't relate to them or, or the way they live or their customs or their food Are you ready to commit yourself to the Lord and whatever he may be calling to you unreservedly? Not wherever you may want, Lord, as long as it's not to this place or to those people or or, or to something that I don't particularly like. Because we can have confidence that what God wants for us is not the thing that we're going to find hardish just because it's hard, but will be the best for us that we can affirm God's good, pleasing, perfect will 
the very best. At a time when there was all kinds of turbulence in the Muslim world, particularly at the time when the United States invaded Afghanistan, and many missionaries working in the Muslim world were really quite nervous, and sensibly so, about the possible repercussions to Christians in Muslim contexts. Uh, another mission put out an advert, and they, it said in that advert, the safest place to be is in the center of God's will. The safest place to be is in the center of God's will. And the best place to be is in the center of God's will. And if you think that perhaps the Lord is, is nudging you or pushing you or booting you, whatever it takes, into something new, something different, something that might feel uncomfortable, but something that you believe that he's calling you into, then move forward because that is the best. Not just for whatever he's calling you to do, but for you to be in the center of his will. Don't hold back. Don't make him repeat it three times. He will if he has to. But the sooner you move forward, the better. I don't know what he's saying to you, but I do know that whatever he's saying to you, you need to say yes to. Are you ready to be used by God to take his good news to others in whatever way he asks of you? Two questions and a cause for rejoicing. I think there is so much here to rejoice that God has gone to so much trouble for us. We praise him for that. That the good news that he's given us is for everybody. That the wall that divided us from God has come crashing down. That the wall that divides us from one another has come crashing down. Most of us anyway are, are the Gentiles who weren't part of the Jews. But we're now all included. We have good news about Jesus Christ that knows no favorite, neither Jew or Gentile or Englishman or Scotsman or rich or poor or upper class or working class or Asian or Westerner or whatever. The gospel of good news of life in Jesus Christ is for everybody. And we rejoice in that. And we look forward to the heavenly vision. It was already read out for us earlier. That great multitude that no one can count from every nation, tribe and language standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands and they cried out in a loud voice. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we do praise you that you went to immense trouble in Jesus and in the thousands of years before Jesus to make our salvation possible. And you still go to great trouble with us that we would really understand this good news that we've been given and that we've been entrusted with and that amazingly you have made us partners with you in taking to the rest of the world. Lord, help us to be faithful in doing that whether it's down the street or across the office or across the ocean. Whatever you're calling us to, Lord, give us the courage to say yes and to move forward and to do what might feel uncomfortable and different or unconventional or whatever it is. 
that we might be faithful to you and that you might be glorified and others might discover Jesus. Lord, this is our prayer. Amen.